Our scripture reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. If you need it, you can find it in the Pew Bible on page 980. 980. Philippians 1, beginning in verse 1. Let us now hear God's Word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Word of the Lord. So begins the letter to the church at Philippi. And it's a letter that opens in the conventional way of the first century. We're told who's sending it. We're told who the recipients are, and there's an offer of greetings. And Paul doesn't, off, uh, you know, he doesn't change this style. He uses it. But in doing so, he actually does something unique. He actually fills this little introduction with the gospel, specifically with the good news of what it means for us to belong to God in Christ. This little letter opens by telling us that it's from Paul and Timothy. And in telling us this, what Paul's saying is, I'm the sole author, but as I write, I'm not alone. No, Timothy is with me. Now, why include Timothy? Well, because Timothy was both dear to Paul and to the church at Philippi. What was Timothy presently doing? Well, he was ministering to Paul while Paul was in prison. And in the past, what had Timothy done? He had ministered to the Philippians when they planted the church. And concerning the future, it was Paul's hope to send Timothy back to Philippi that he might minister to them again on Paul's behalf. It's not surprising that Timothy is included in this introduction. But here's what's a bit surprising. That rather than identifying himself as Paul the Apostle, and identifying Timothy as his special assistant, what does Paul do? He identifies them as servants. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, literally slaves of Christ Jesus. And he puts it this way, so at the very beginning of the letter, he wants to stress something. He wants to stress the truth that no Christian Whatever their position in the church or in society, that every Christian is never excluded from being a servant. Because the truth is, every Christian has been bought with a price. And therefore, we're no longer our own. But we belong, body and soul, to our Master, Jesus Christ. Christians are people this may sound strange to us, Christians are people who are owned by Christ. And as such, we're a people who owe Christ. We owe Him glad obedience and grateful service. We've been called from death to life. We've been delivered from the penalty and power of sin. We've been freed. Freed not to live for self, but freed to serve Christ. And to serve Him not as a mere duty, but as our greatest delight, our chief delight, to serve Him who first, 
and this is crucial that we get this, to serve Him who first served us, who served us. In Jesus, we don't meet a self-centered tyrant who uses and abuses us. No, we meet a king who humbly serves us, who willingly laid down his life for us. We meet a king who counts us as more significant than himself, more significant than even his own self-preservation. To be a Christian is to belong to a humble king who saves us by serving us, serving us all the way to his own demise and shame on the cross. And friends, until his first service grips our hearts, we won't. We can't. We, we can't see the beauty and experience the joy of serving Jesus. It's His cross-shaped service that alone has the power, an explosive power, that actually turns self-serving sinners into self-giving servants. In referring to himself and Timothy as servants of Christ, what Paul's doing is he's already hitting on one of the main themes that he'll come back to again and again in Philippians. What's the theme? It's humility of humbly counting Christ and others as more significant than ourselves, and doing so because Christ has counted us as more significant than Himself. Humility is at the heart of Christianity. Without it, there can be no unity in the church, no genuine service to others, and no ability to fight the ever-lurking desire to make it all about me rather than making it all about Christ. Humble service isn't optional for the Christian. No, it's the fruit of Christ's humble service to us. Paul and Timothy were servants of Christ Jesus. And the question is, are you? Am I? Well, we won't be without daily positioning ourselves at the foot of Jesus' cross, where with the eyes of faith, what do we see? We see the Lord of glory serving us in His own divine humility. Friends, there's not an ounce of pride in Jesus there's not an inkling of self-centeredness because our Lord in His humility has always been, always been other-centered. From eternity, the greatest delight of God the Son has been to humbly and fully give Himself to God the Father, to serving His Father, not because He's less than the Father, but because He eternally loves His Father. And in time, He manifested His own eternal delight of humbly serving His Father by humbly serving us. Humbly serving us on His Father's behalf. Serving us that we might now be freed to find our greatest delight in humbly serving Him and others on His behalf. Humble service to Christ 
is never menial. It's glorious. It's what we were made and redeemed for. It's central to being human, of bearing the image of Him who humbly served us, who again counted us as more significant than Himself. Now, in light of this, here's a question. How might you change? How might your relationships change if you really saw yourself as a servant of Christ Jesus? A servant of Him who first served you and who's called you to embody His eternal way of being humble. The real question is, is Christ's humble and sacrificial service to you making a difference in your life, in your relationships, and is it making a difference to us as a church family? So, a letter from Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And notice it's a letter that's written who? to whom? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, in describing himself and Timothy as servants, what do we sort of expect? We expect Paul to describe those at Philippi as servants as well, but that's not what he does, is it? How does he describe them? He calls them saints, literally set apart ones, even better, holy ones. Have you ever thought about yourself in terms of being a saint? Well, if not, you need to. And I would encourage you to start today because if you're a Christian, that's precisely what you are. Sainthood isn't something we ascend to. It's not something that's for a select few. No, being a saint is true of all Christians. That's why Paul says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And operative word is in Christ. We could put it this way, you are a holy one because you're in, you belong to, you're united to the holy one, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Him, you've been set apart by God's holy pleasure to be God's holy possession in order to live according to God's holy purpose for your life. If you are a believer in Jesus, you believed into Jesus, you are a saint. And it's crucial that we see ourselves in this way. It's crucial that we see other Christians in this way. You know, I grew up in a tradition where it was common for everybody to refer to one another as brother or sister so-and-so. And I know it would be strange, but it wouldn't, shouldn't be a stretch because it's true about us if we began to refer to one another as saint so-and-so. Thinking, oh, no, we're not going to do that. But it's true. Saint Scott, Saint David, Saint Judy. And doing so not as a joke, because it's, because it's absolutely true that that's what we are in Christ. We are saints in Christ Jesus. And again, operative phrase, in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, it means that we are in vital union with Him, in a vital relationship, one that's so intimate 
that we can say that what's true of Him is now true of us. What's His is now ours. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. To be in Christ means that we're the beneficiaries of all the blessings that flow from His life, death, resurrection, present reign, and glorious return. To be in Christ is, to, is, is nothing less than to have His full salvation. To be in Christ is to have nothing less than His full salvation, His full forgiveness, His complete acceptance, His everlasting security that's stronger than death itself. In writing about this, Alec Motier has said, to be in Christ means everything necessary to your past, present, and future and eternal welfare has been secured for you by the action of God in Christ and is stored up in Christ and is experienced by faith in Christ. In Christ, every promise of God has been fulfilled and every blessing of God is found. It's in Christ that God does His great saving and transforming work, turning sinners into saints, into His beloved and holy people. And Paul wants us to know this. He wants you to know who you truly are, that in Christ you have a solid identity, the identity of being God's holy possession. And it's this identity that's to shape everything else about you. It's to shape the way you view yourself. And it's to shape the way you conduct yourself in the world. In being Christians, followers of Jesus, we're, we're not to be in the popular business of trying on different identities. Identities that come and go based on our feelings or our circumstances. That's the sort of culture that we live in. We, we live in a culture that's, that's burdened and confused because it believes that, that we humans are responsible for creating and maintaining our own identities. Whether it be a political identity, a economic identity, a religious identity, a national identity, a sexual identity, and the list could go on and on. And the reason this is done is because, as humans, we can't help but crave an identity. An identity that will be thoroughly loved, valued, and validated. And so what do we do? We, we try to create one only to be frustrated when we find ourselves not loved, valued, and validated by everyone else. But you see, there's two problems with that sort of thinking. Here's the first problem. We humans don't have it in us to create a solid identity. At best, the, the best we can do is craft a liquid one, one that we can pour into the cup of one identity when that doesn't work, we can pour it into another identity only to be confronted again by the truth that we're still not satisfied, that we're still restless, 
that we're still on that never-ending journey of self-discovery. What's the second problem with this sort of thinking? It's that we're looking to other broken humans to give us ultimate love, ultimate value, and ultimate validation. Can broken humans really give that to other broken humans? No. That's something God alone can do. God alone gives us ultimate love, ultimate value, and ultimate validation. And that's the whole point. What we humans long for, the identity we most deeply desire, whether we realize it or not, is found in Christ alone. And this in Christ identity, it's not something we're responsible for creating, but it is something we're responsible for receiving. How do we receive it? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The identity we need, the identity that will help us make sense of ourselves, that will give us purpose, is an identity we don't make, but it's something that God gives. One writer puts it like this, if you're a Christian, you have an identity not because you invented one or because you have a little hardcore selfhood that's unchanged, but because you have a divine witness of who you are in Christ. What you don't understand or see, the bits of yourself that you can't pull together in a convincing story are held together in a single gaze of divine love. You don't have to work out and finalize who you are. No, in the eyes of God that never turns away from His own, all that you have been and are is now held together in Christ because the whole of you is held together by Christ. And what this means is that in Christ, we're given a love that will not let us go. In Christ, we're valued because we're God's holy possession. In Christ, we're actually validated because in Christ, God has declared us righteous, pardoned, and forgiven in His sight. It's in Christ that God says to you the very same thing He said to His own Son at His baptism. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. In Christ, God sees you, God knows you, God loves you, and He's called you to be His own, His beloved saint one who's been set apart to rest in His love and out of that rest to begin to reflect His love, His love that is unwavering. Before anything else, before you're an American or a Texan, before you're a Republican or a Democrat, before you're single or married, before your particular skin color or social class, before anything else, before even you're a sinner, in Christ you are a saint. And it's this identity that we have to keep in mind, especially when other identities want to be primary. 
that we have to keep in mind when we're tempted to sin and forget who we are. We need to remind one another of who we are in Christ, that we are saints. And it's this identity that we're daily to live into and out of. And to do so where? In the particular places where we live and work and play. That's why Paul adds the words at Philippi. Yes, we're in Christ, but we're in Christ in locales. In the locales of our city, neighborhood, and workplaces. It's in these places that we're to live out our saint-in-Christ identity, to live as ones who, in Christ, have been set apart, set apart to be His possession, set apart to live according to His purpose. Because you see, God didn't set us apart in Christ to remain separate from the world. No, He set us apart in Christ to send us into the world so that the world might see and experience Christ through us, His people. As saints in Christ, we're to live in such a way that our secular friends see and sense the difference. In Christ, we are children of our Heavenly Father, and because we are, others are to see the family resemblance in us. In our work, in our play, in our civic service, others are to get a taste of who our God is, a taste of His love, His patience, His holiness, wisdom, and His forgiveness. And admittedly, this is a tall order, to be a saint in Christ in Fort Worth, in my neighborhood, in my workplace. It is a tall order, and that's why we can't do it alone. No, we need the church. We need other saints. We need church leaders who'll pray and care for us, leaders who'll feed us faithfully with God's Word. We can't live as saints in Christ without an immersion in the church, specifically the local expression of the church. Because here's the reality, apart from the church, our growth in Christ will be stunted, and our going out for Christ, it'll be stagnant. The Bible never presents the church, even the local church, whether in Philippi, Rome, Corinth, or Fort Worth, as a mere added extra that we can take or leave. No, the local family of God is essential. It's necessary. The local church is the context where God is at work. At work doing what? Forming us into the people He's called to be by His grace. You need the church. And this church needs you. It needs your person and your participation, just as you need its provision and protection. So here's the encouragement. Don't keep the church at arm's length. No, embrace it, even with all her flaws and faults, and there are plenty of them. But the only way we can embrace the church is if we continually keep in mind that Jesus 
loves his church. Jesus loves Fort Worth Presbyterian Church. It's here that he reminds us week after week and in our smaller gatherings of our in Christ identity. And it's here in this community, this family, that he teaches us what it means to live it out in Fort Worth, to be encouraged by one another, to continue to look to Christ and remember who we are, that we are saints in Christ in Fort Worth, Texas, but we're not saints alone. We're saints with overseers and deacons, meaning the church. We're in this together. So, a letter from servants of Christ to saints in Christ. And then lastly, what's, what's this letter about? Well, that brings us to Paul's actual greetings there in verse 2. And in these greetings, what he does is he gives us a succinct summary of the entire letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in putting it this way, Paul is stressing both the gift and the giver of our salvation. The giver, of course, being the Father and the Son. And even though the Spirit isn't mentioned here, he certainly implied because the only way you and I experience the gifts of the Father and the Son is through the Spirit. The giver of our salvation is the Holy Trinity. Every person of the Trinity is fully engaged in our salvation. And here Paul describes this salvation in two words, grace and peace. In Christ, God is gracious, gracious towards you. His posture towards you is not one of being an enemy. His face towards you doesn't have a frown. It has a smile because His posture toward those who are in Christ is one of all-sufficient and completely undeserved favor. His favor that's pursued you as you tried to run away. That's rescued you when you couldn't save yourself. That secured you. His grace bled and died for you. God's grace cost us absolutely nothing. But it cost Christ everything. That's why God's grace is never cheap. And it can never be earned. No, it can only be received. How? With the empty hands of faith. We receive God's grace with the empty hands of faith. Faith in the one who embodies God's grace. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this isn't your own doing. No, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Or as he says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 8 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Rich with His love. Rich with His life. Rich with His forgiveness. Rich with His promise that one day, all our present sorrow will give way to everlasting joy. Grace to you from God the Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you received this greeting? Are you resting in it? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Is that amazing grace sweet to you? And as Christians, we have to remind ourselves of it because it's so easy to take it for granted, to lose sight of the grace that our God has shown to us. What about peace? Well, peace is the first and abiding fruit of God's undeserved grace. Grace leads to peace with God. Through the grace of Jesus' cross, God is now at peace with you, and you are at peace with God. In Christ, God is not against you. No, in Christ, He is for you. When I say you, I'm speaking to you because it's so easy to say, oh, this is all great for so-and-so. No, for you. In Christ, you have peaceful access to His throne of grace where you're assured that God's peace which surpasses all understanding, can and will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Gospel peace is Godward in that it always looks to the God of peace who graciously gives peace. Gospel peace is inward and that it always rests in the peace that we have in Christ, and gospel peace is outward, and that it's always to be shown to others, especially in the body of Christ. Grace and peace. This is God's gift to His saints and servants in Christ Jesus. This was true for the Christians in Philippi, It remains true for us here in Fort Worth. And because it's true, it's it's not surprising that Paul says, rejoice. And he says again, rejoice. Because that's another fruit that when that grace and when that peace grips your heart, you really can't help but rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Because in Him, you are saved. In Him, you are a holy one, a saint. And because of what He's done for you, you begin to serve Him. Not to gain His favor, not to earn His pleasure, but because you already have it. God is for you in Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, what a grand greeting, so simple on the surface, and yet so deep. Thank you that it's ours in Christ. We believe it, but help our unbelief. Amen.